Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm very, very well. I know that today will be a bit of a fave for you. <laughs> you see, this is Derek Shulman, right, who's the singer and the main guy, if you like. Well, one of a few of the three brothers. Yeah. Few, yeah. Three brothers, the Shulman brothers, who started the band Gentle Giant. And we've mentioned them a lot on the show, haven't we, over the years? Yeah, we have, yeah. Sometimes, ironically. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think they're pop... No, because they are the zenith. Let's face it, they are the zenith of kind of clever prog, and you know. They are. And, yeah. I mean, they, they out-prog-prog, prog, don't they? They do out-prog-prog. Prog. I mean, I've been listening to them for the last few days, you know, trying to get my... And basically, I've kind of had to take a break from my head exploding and sort of listening to something simple like Marla... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to put the listener off who doesn't know Gentle Giant because there are no, some. They're amazing. They are amazing. Absolutely. And they were one of the bands to have in the quad, you know, growing up as a kid when you were sort of experimenting with different musical sounds. They were one of the bands. No, absolutely. Oh, but talking about there's an interesting thing. We had a comment on Twitter. Dave Malloy, I think it was, who came up with the Rock on Tours checklist about, like, does it have the three things, which are Prog, Bowie, and Bolan? Ah. And actually, we can get all three in on this one if we play our cards right. Well, we can. You're yeah. absolutely right. And we will. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it! And Or die trying! <laughs> Derek's career is quite incredible because it starts in the 60s with Psychedelia. And it, actually, at one point, Sid gets involved. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Sid no, Barrett. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Then it moves into serious prog with Green uh, Gentle Giant. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. The Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> I'm sorry, but because, you know, the first album did have that face on it, it did make me think of the sweet corner bit. I know. Anyway, so Gentle <laughs> Giant. And then he's involved in two of the biggest records ever in global pop music. 
Yeah, and do you think this is... Well, we'll talk about that. Don't give everything away. Do you think it's quite ironic that these guys set themselves a task of making this incredibly difficult, you know, or sophisticated music? And they did as well as they possibly could, I would say. You know, we're still talking about... But the great irony is that when he goes off, it turns out if there's one thing he can do, it's spot a hit. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I think we should start the conversation when we get him on, any second now, with this... viral video that went around last year of of one of their more difficult tunes that became, it won the prog event of the year for Prog Magazine. That's right, for the song Proclamation, which I think was done all over the world. It was his son, wasn't it, who arranged it? We're going to talk about it. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. It's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. That's a big tune, for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them, and they've been really good, man. Sitting in the back of the car coming into London, they're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, to Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hi, Derek. Listen, can I say it's such a pleasure having you on, Derek, because your name and your band's name, your old band's name, have come up a lot yeah. on rock on tours in different places and sometimes really surprising places obviously when we're talking about progressive music from the early 70s it pops up but talk it to john bon jovi on one of our earlier podcasts and there you were you know i don't think you know i'd ever made that association until studying your history i'm the forest gump of rock and roll <laughs> well that's what and pat leonard of course was very big so you were basically his inspiration it's funny, you're finally getting gold records when you didn't get them in the band, probably. <laughs> you know? Yes, actually, that's actually true, believe it or not. Yeah. Do you know what I think it is? When in the early 70s, when I was buying your albums, you know, it was a big commitment to buy a record. You know, Gentle Giant weren't the sort of act you'd hear on the radio. So you'd go into a shop and you'd see, like, you know, the amazing you know, George Underwood cover or the uh, Roger Dean cover. And you think, you know, I'm going to give this a listen. And you'd spend the money and take it home. But now this music is all out there for free. And I think a lot of kids and they're skimming this music and they're finding it, you know, and yeah, it sounds fresh. Especially all the wonderful new remixes. With Stephen, of course, yeah. Well, I've got to say, I actually went up to Stephen's studio and he played me the Atmos mix of uh, On Reflection from Freeham, which was just mind-blowing, yeah. I mean, Stephen is a friend, of course, you know, as well as 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 an incredible musician. And he's he's captured uh, all of his mixes, actually, are fantastic because he really gives the music a little more space and air that we, I guess, in those days couldn't put it on tape as it were then but he's also very he doesn't put his stamp on it per se he allows the music to continue as it was but allows it to breathe if you like so yeah the atmos mix of a a freehand in particular but he's also done uh, a couple of others going forward which we're looking forward to putting out soon yeah i I heard that mix that guy's talking about at stevens as well and um in 8.1 and oh, really? of course, yeah. it suits what you did because what a lot of what you did had this kind of incredible vocal arrangement where you and your two brothers and uh, maybe Kerry were, you know, making this sort of fugue-like music with singing, almost medieval. Well, some of it was, yeah. I mean, and some of it was was uh, kind of damn hard to sing. 
<laughs> let me tell you, it was a lot of those scored, of course. I mean, Carey was and is, I mean, an unbelievable musician. I mean, we're talking about the very top notch, I would say classical musician mm-hmm. that we turned into a rock and roller, you know, despite his kicking and screaming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, we were very fortunate in having Carey, who had, you know, had a degree in, in composition as well as percussion coming from the Royal Academy of Music and have a degree, you know, and studying under incredible mentors, if you like. He scored a lot of these um, pieces that you're talking about, the a cappella stuff. Also incredible to think what your start points were for any of your pieces, because they all go to so many places. <laughs> but you know what? If anyone is, a, is a listening out there to as a musician, I would hope you'll find it interesting that every piece, if you like, I've done a song because sometimes they weren't really songs, they had a theme. So you'll hear whatever you'll hear on top, whether it's a vocal part or, or the guitar part or other parts in the music or the bass part, you'll hear the thematic mm-hmm. structure of the piece. I mean, I'm not saying that we were the London Symphony Orchestra or anything like that, because we were, and we were a rock and roll band, end of story. But we enjoyed playing together and pushing ourselves, actually, just on a personal level musically. Gotcha. Yeah, but it's interesting what Guy says, because it is, you know, it's so complex, the music, but very fulfilling. And what I loved about progressive music as a kid, and I want to say progressive music, because it wasn't the sort of stuff you get on top of the pops, is that it could take me places forever. You know, I was never bored with this. I was always discovering, because it was always pushing the time signatures, changing the keys. But what he's saying, and I do want to just follow up on that, is something like a track called Just the Same, which I think is on in a glass house. It credits you as being the sole writer for that song. No, I think that just the same as is, 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 uh, me, Kerry and Ray. That was on Freehand, I believe. How was the writing approach? Well, for the most part, Ray, my brother, and Kerry, you know, me, Ray, and Kerry would sit there with a Revox, you know, two-track machine in those days, and and we'd sit in our various rooms, houses, apartments, flats, whatever, or you know, kitchens. And a fiddle around until we thought we had something which is something, a riff or a, a little piece that could be expanded on. And then and I would say 80% to 90% was either Ray or Carrie who would write the music part. I would come in with about 10 to 15%. And uh, then we three get together and put these pieces together so that it made a composite of what the song or the piece of music, song, track or whatever, was all about and then um then the lyrics would come out of that the music that was already written so basically it was one thing we never did was you know go into a rehearsal room and jam you know that's uh, yeah. that's you know we were never kind of like a hey, john put you know lay down a four four <laughs> come on let's see what kind of chords you can come up with that was never a gentle giant we'd, we'd come in with ideas and then we sit down with you know when we had some formula or formulated kind of music then John and, and Gaz, Gary, would come in. We'd say, oh, look, here are the parts. Great bass player, I suppose. Oh, Ray's superb. Yeah. Yeah, really is. We were pretty good, <laughs> uh, you know, back in the day. It's funny because I even, you know, having looked back on my life in music, if you like, I was in a band even before Gentle Giant. Well, we're going to get on oh, to yeah, that. Oh, we're, yeah, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm not sure if you should look forward to it or not. But anyway, <laughs> more recently, in the last couple of years, several years actually, the popularity of the band is bizarre because it's become probably as big, if not bigger, than it was when we were going and more popular with the younger generation, which is, you know, so I guess I'm happy to say that there's an element of timelessness to it. Who knew? Because we were just doing it 
ultimately for ourselves. And then we got on stage and hopefully an audience would come see us and, and pay their money. We could put bread on the table, if you like. I'm not that surprised about the increase in popularity because it's interesting from young people I know, <laughs> children and stuff, that there seems to be a move towards more complexity in music just because pop music, everything from hip-hop to just general pop, has become so melodically simple over the last few years. And there's a lot of kind of young bands who are going down quite a jazzy direction or yep. something. And I think that's, that's why people now are looking to the past because people just want a, a bit of chops you know because the only place you kind of found chops for the last few years is that super heavy metal and that's really yeah. quite a task to listen to <laughs> well some yeah but, but uh, yeah. no i think you're correct actually i think there's a, a quasi backlash on on machine music if you like and mm -hmm. the producers who have a formula there's no real melody per se there's no choruses there's no uh, you know it's just there's a formula for a hit which is in the zeros and ones i mean the computer uh, generated mm -hmm. music which I don't judge. I mean, if it's popular, it's popular. If a five-second TikTok piece yeah. is, is popular. Can I just say, Guy, that ironically, Derek is probably responsible for some of that super heavy metal that you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I jumped in and said, mm, yes, okay. But I was also saying that's where all the chops are. That yeah. is where the but musicianship I'm thinking because later on in his career, we're signing Pantera. But, and, and, exactly. and talking about yeah. you know young people digging your music and this sort of rebirth of Gentle Giant is in this recent lockdown video that went viral. Oh, yes! Of proclamation from Power and the Glory. I mean, that's just yeah. unbelievable. That six-minute track with how many musicians? Anyone who hasn't seen it, go and yeah, it's Google brilliant. Proclamation Gentle Giant and recent video. And it was your son, wasn't it, who arranged that, Derek? Yeah, my son Noah, who uh, was born after we stopped performing. I mean, it's my son, but he's an incredibly talented, creative force in his own right with video and music and other he's the head of creative at sony legacy but uh he's been begging <laughs> me, me and, and the other guys you know when he sees them just one more show because i've never seen you and i i said no look at your father i'm an old fart for god's sake you know <laughs> but he was able to get us to be part of this video and the good thing is he saw so many younger people play um the various songs from various albums. And he thought, what a good idea it would be to just put some joy out there because we were in the middle of a lockdown. It was awful. And there was 120. He had to literally cut it down to 120 um, tracks or pieces of uh, instrumentation. And he got the whole band to perform in this in some way or other. Uh, and then poor Ray, my brother Ray, uh, he had to contend with actually putting the sound together. I mean, really mixing the sound of 120 different guys. That's hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. It turned out amazingly. And I'm really happy that people saw it. This seems like a good place to jump back because we're now we're talking about your son. We're talking about third generation, right? Because it all comes from your dad, doesn't it? With you three brothers being yeah. so musical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah, my father was, um, in those days, it was called a dance band leader. He loved jazz and, and classical. You know, he played trumpet in a band in Portsmouth. He'd pick up any instrument, and I guess that sort of genetic material in our DNA was handed down to all of us here. He would be able to pick up any instrument, whether it's a clarinet, trumpet, bagpipes, and uh, be able to play them you know, with incredible skill within five minutes. And music was always around the house. When he finished a gig, he'd bring back uh, a couple of musicians, and they'd actually play in our house and, until four in the morning, just for fun. 
you know, and I creep downstairs and, and it's like, get back up, you've got to go to school tomorrow. <gasps> Music was always part of my, since I was conceived, I guess. So in that respect, I guess we were all lucky. So just fill me in. So you were born and brought up initially in the Gorbals in Scotland. There's you and your brother, Phil and Ray. I don't know what the age differences are. And then you end up moving out of Portsmouth for some reason. I was born in Glasgow. Ray was not. Ray was born in Portsmouth. My father was posted. He was a paratrooper during the war, and God knows where he went. But he ended up in Portsmouth. And the Gorbals in, in, I don't remember because I was only two years old when I moved down. But my brother Phil remembered it. And the Gorbals was probably as awful as, um, you know, uh, Ukraine it is right now. You know, <laughs> the hardest core place to be brought up in. Well, yeah, Gary and I talked about it the other day. We were saying, we remember when we were kids, it was the sort of place you'd see World in Action documentaries about. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You walk down the street, you, you turn around and look at someone, you get knifed in the face or, or got, so you got the hell out of there. You know, it was a Catholics versus Protestants versus Jews and, and got Irish versus, you know, who knows? I, you know, so when he was stationed near Portsmouth, he went down this is a better place to bring up, bring up my family. And then Ray was born, you know, a couple of years after me. I mean, what you do in, in General Giant is you're all swapping instruments nonstop. Yeah. I mean, one of you's playing the saxophone. The, I mean, what kind of instruments were in the house and how did you learn all of these things? As I said, I mean, it, it was like, I think it came from, you know, again, our DNA. It was, we'd be able to pick up an instrument. We all play guitar. I play guitar, you know, and, and, and uh, but not great, but I could certainly strum a three chords. But, uh, you know, Ray was a guitarist initially in the first group we were in a group called Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about that. <laughs> we love Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. Really? Okay, well, I did too, actually. No. It was a fantastic time. There's no Simon Dupree and there's not really a Big Sound. So it's kind of the same etymological route as like Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> so, isn't it? It's just a name and a thing. <laughs> You're right. It, sounds, it was probably virtually the same thing anyway, actually. Yeah. You know, we were, we were, well, we, you know, again, it was being able to pick up an instrument and and we weren't like masters of I could play guitar but I'm not a you know wangy amazing player like Gary is but I could certainly play some guitar we all could play you know, fairly well but obviously we got very really good at certain things Gary is really a you know a keyboard genius and Ray is an incredible player but let's let's talk about Simon Dupre and the Big Sound because I mean you obviously started off in a very what should we say what kind of what kind of music is it, Guy? It had a kind of it was Walker a Brothers slight, It had the Walker either. Brothers slightly R&B thing and very, very pop. But what's interesting, especially in the keyboards, is you can hear there's this sort of nascent prog waiting to get out, I think. You know, initially, to tell you the truth, when we started, we, start, we started when I was at school, of course. You know, all schoolboys in those days wanted to be the Beatles. Yeah. They started everything. A couple of school friends... I said, let's put a group together, you know, and so uh, we got a, a school group together with my friends uh, who were at school with one, you know, the drummer played pots and pans on drums. I had uh, a Spanish guitar, which, and then my father bought me the first electric guitar, a Vox, a red Vox three pickup, God knows what it was. Then Ray played, he was a violinist, was being trained, and in fact had a place at the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain to be the, one of the, you know, lead violinist. And I said, right, come join the band. You could be a rhythm violinist, which he was initially. <laughs> Not a lot of ads in the back of the melody maker for a rhythm violinist, it must be said. The, but the future was there, you know, Atomic Rooster yeah, yeah. and uh, oh, all these yeah, other yeah. bands that, you know, embraced the violin. Eddie Jobson. We started getting serious about being in a band. We got a couple of gigs. 
And then, you know, we started playing well. That was a score, you know, in the fifth, sixth form and fifth form. And we got good. And we, but what we used to do is listen to American Forces Network at Radio uh, Luxembourg. And, and we were really a soul band initially. Mm-hmm. You know, we were playing all the sort of, uh, you know, like every other band in those days. I mean, the Beatles were, the Stones were, you know, we listened to all the blues and everyone was doing the same thing. And, you know, we'd, we'd all be playing the American music that the Americans didn't even know they had. Ultimately, we'd be playing like nine or ten gigs a week, no matter where you were. And, you know, I was just leaving school. My Ray was still at school. We became fairly good. I mean, we, to get those kind of chops, a quick sidebar story was, uh, is that um, I went to grammar school. And in those days, the grammar school was all boys with the, with the teachers with mortar boards and the cloaks and, you know, God knows what else. And at 13, the careers teacher came, uh, you know, to our class and and you know at grammar school in those days you were supposed to be the politicians of the future the scientists the the elite it was a real class it's it's so stupid because thank god it's different now but um i got a scholarship anyway uh and i at 13 i said i want to be a rock star and the class is <laughs> you know yeah yeah right uh, the, the master said don't be so stupid shulman well you know three and a half years later we had our first single and we were on radio. Well, it was like um, program at those days. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being mocked as someone who you know, had no clue about what that meant. And the masses coming up before an autograph. Which is, you know, <laughs> most, yeah. yeah. And then we, forget, we, we turned pro, you know, as it were. But it was definitely psychedelia. You embraced psychedelia as well, didn't you, with, with that? Well, we did. And then we had a, you know, a very, very, you know, we had three singles in the top 40. Which luckily we uh, we not kept us going. We had a very good following actually. We were good live. We learned stagecraft actually, and that's what a lot of bands, whether it's Led Zeppelin, Stones, you know, whoever you you were back in those days. If you played t- ten gigs a week or more, and that you could do that in those days, you learned to you know get either good or you just gave up. The song Kites is, was yes. your top ten hit, I think. You know, which is a great tune. Which you were you were on record as saying. I don't know how long ago this was. You said you thought it was utter shite, which I think is a bit harsh. I wonder if you've reconsidered your view in the fullness of time. Absolutely, of course. <laughs> no, I, we, we, no, no, it, it, we, it, it wasn't a style in which we were used to be used to playing. But our manager, who was in fact my brother-in-law, said yeah. this is a great song. Keep it in the family, uh, yeah. Uh, well, this of course, you know, this is a uh, you know, nepotism plus. Um, he said, I think this could really work, and we 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 listened to it and, and said, oh, God, do we really have to? And I said, Okay, let's let's give it a shot. Our keyboard player Eric, uh, the keyboard player, you know, we, in fact, the, the Mellotron in the studio in Abbey Road was the Beatles' uh, Mellotron. Anyway, it became a massive hit, you know, and and in that respect. It kind of changed our, our outlook to a certain degree, but it also at the same time, it changed the public's viewpoint of what Simon Dupree was. And then we started getting bagged into these shitty, uh, excuse my French, um, you know, working men's clubs to play the hits up in Stockport and, and you know, God knows where else. Mm-hmm. And that really started to get to me and get to the band because we, we were getting good musically. But the, one of the probably the most, believe it or not, important aspects of that period of time was when Reg's Dwight joined the band. That's right, huh? yes. We were going to bring that up, obviously, yes. He was intrinsic in some oh, respects okay. of saying, hey, boy, you, you, you're you really good. I said, well, thanks, Reg, you are too, you know. 
Hang on, how did you and Elton John get to meet? I know he wasn't Elton John there, but how did that happen? Well, a keyboard player at the time, um, he came down with a, you know, quite a serious case of glandular fever. We were booked on a tour of the UK, but you know, some parts of Europe. And I think Jerry Braun, who was a manager at the time, had heard from Dick James that this guy, Reg Dwight, was looking for a gig. And he's, he was getting £10 a week from Dick James. And we met El- Reg, I mean, Elton, I call him Elton now, er- you know, Reg. He's obviously a good player. And I said, uh, would you like to come on tour and be the keyboard player for Simon Dupree? He said, yeah, and we can offer him £25 a week. He said, that's two and a half times what I'm getting. God, I'm going to be rich. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, so uh, he... He came on tour with us, and he was he was hilarious. I, and we we're still friends, by the way, after you know forty odd years of uh, God, even plus uh, years. He wrote a song for you, didn't he? Did he? Did yeah. He recorded one of his songs. He wrote several songs, but what, you know, a couple were recorded. But he was actually the one that said, you know, have you heard of this band called Spirit in, in America? And you could do some interesting things, et cetera, et cetera. And that's towards the end of the group. And um, he introduced us to some bands that we hadn't known before. We were, we were still rocking, doing, you know, sort of uh, Otis Redding stuff and, and this, that, and the other. And um, this is actually when he met Bernie. He actually wrote a couple of songs and played on, on several other tracks that we didn't, we, we never released. But anyway, he introduced us to this band Spirit, who was out of California, mm-hmm. and he said, they're doing really interesting things. And, and uh, they were. And um, so it kind of like, together with Reg being part of the group and him introducing uh, us to different things. And then we whispered in his ear that we were going to break up the band and we were going to do something completely new because it was getting playing these working men's clubs and, and, and the, the people eating, eating scampi and chips in front of us, waiting for the hits was like, I can't tell you how depressing it was, you know, even though we were getting good money. I said, we can't do this anymore. So uh, we were lucky in the fact that we were able to have a patron, in fact, uh, with our manager, Jerry Braun, who we told we want to break up the band and something completely new. We don't know where it's going to be and what it's going to do, but we can't do this anymore. And he said, well, I believe in you musicians. And in fact, Reg said, I'd love to, you know, um, audition to be your keyboard player. You know, we went up to his house in uh, Watford. It wasn't Watford. It was, um, that was the north of London and with his mom there. Pinner, Pinner, isn't it? Pinner, thank you. Yeah, exactly that. And, you know, he started playing your song and Skyline Pigeon. Me and Ray went home on the train and said, he's a great guy, but it's not going to work for us. So he said, you know, Reg, you know, it's not going to work. Thank God for him. Because a year later, he was Elton John and, and yeah. being, he was incredibly famous. And a year later, we were scrapping to get gigs in, in Portsmouth. So uh, thank God we turned him down. Derek, I love that story because, you know, what Elton's really famous for is always having his ear to the ground as far as contemporary music is concerned. Even Absolutely. today, I mean, you know, yeah. we had the Anchoress on recently and, and Elton's a fan of hers. I mean, he, all the way through his career. And the fact that he helped to turn you guys onto a particular more complex music, which helped you evolve and, you know, he, he was there then. But I do want yeah. to jump back to Kites because I found out something really f- fun about Kites. I don't know where the guy found this out, but he might enjoy this, but... Um, on that song, you can hear a, a, a woman's voice speaking, which is, you know, in itself quite a proggy thing anyway, but speaking in right. Mandarin, you know, small nothings or whatever it is. And um, I found out she's an actress called Jackie Chan, 
who was yeah. the woman who had an affair with Anthony Armstrong Jones. And she, in The Crown, she's been played by an actor in, in The Crown, isn't she? That's deep research, Gary. Deep wow. research. She was in a West End play called Tea House of the August Moon. Oh. <laughs> Which was a film with Marlon Brando and someone, I can't remember us. Anyway. And the follow-up to that was that she couldn't speak a word of Mandarin or, or, or any Chinese, and it was all phonetically put in front of her. But she was found by our managers, our manager, who was my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law was a producer on the BBC. So in that respect, I, we had some good ins there. So God knows, he may have been uh, having some secret affair with her as well. I don't know. I'm not going to say a word. However, she's still around. Careful. All right. Well, while we're on that period, zip. <laughs> the moles. Yeah, it's the moles. That that was our um, me and Ray and 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 Phil uh, were given time in EMI, and we said let's down well, like do something which is you know, crazy. And and uh, you know, John again, my our manager said, go ahead. You know, let's try something out. You know, it wasn't the rest of the band, so. I think Ray played drums. I played guitar and Ray played guitar and Ray played bass and Phil and myself sang. And we produced this song called We Are The Moles. And it was released and there was a buzz going on and it started hitting the charts. And people thought, I guess, you know, radio and other people who had heard it thought this is either the Beatles or some other, you know, with this weird band we've heard about you know, in, in London called Pink Floyd, whatever, you know, this is, this is great <laughs> and everything else. And it started getting a big buzz. And then um, at the time, little did I know that Pink Floyd, in fact, were about to do their three-hour session. So this is getting a big buzz. And it started to make noise. And we thought, well, this is possibly going to be a hit as big as Kite. And um, Sid Barrett, in an interview in the NME or the Melody Maker, I can't remember which, or both, uh, said, no, no, this isn't uh, the Beatles or Pink Floyd. This is that bullshit band, Simon Dupree. We saw them. (laughs) You know, so he basically sort of like ratted us out, you know, so. uh... But that's quite fun because you know that um, Gary and I are in a band with Nick Mason. We were about to go on tour playing Sid's music. So, Really? (laughs) Yeah, we'll be in the States later on this year as well. So we'll we'll... let us know for sure. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the beginning of Gentle Giant and uh, I mean, what a leap, you know, musically to go from, you know, the moles and, and that psychedelia to, you know, the first Gentle Giant album. Those beginnings and those rehearsals and those recordings, 
that was such a leap of faith for you to decide to make this kind of music. Well, yeah, it, well, it was. And, and it was a leap that we had to do. We were getting good. I, I knew we were. And, and getting better at our instrumentation. But we were stymied by the fact that, you know, the hits or the couple of big hits we had were millstones around our necks. So we couldn't progress any further. So when we asked a manager that uh, we were going to break up, would you be prepared to fund us through a period of six to nine months of finding the right musicians to go into some other sphere of music that we want to do? Uh, he said, yeah, I'm prepared to do that, which is unheard of in this day and age. I just want to get your influences yeah. clear in my head because I'm not sure quite of the timeline, but you know, when I listen to what you're doing, you can hear King Crimson obviously, is a comparable band, Soft Machine, bands from the Canterbury scene, you know, whether it's Camel or whatever. That's the world you're living in. What, were you hearing any of that? No, 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 because we're at this, <laughs> all at the same time. It was, it was, if you squash all that period of things, all these bands, into a period of a year, all these guys, I mean, Crimson were called League of Gentlemen, and they lived quite close to us in Bournemouth. All these bands were evolving into something new, Yes, I mean that was uh, that was Keith West tomorrow. You know that was Steve Howe. Uh, yeah, Zeppelin was was um, what was it? Band of Joy. You know, etc. Um, we were all evolving from these R and B bands that that were listening to American music to something new. But we were cocooned in Portsmouth. We weren't part of the establishment in London. So we we were kind of like almost hermits in our world. Our influences were more jazz like, if you like. Frank Zappa was a huge influence. The band that, that uh, Elton suggested, The Spirit, which is not four bars and, and three chords and, and a vocal and, and, a, and a pre-chorus, et cetera, et cetera. But also what turned me on as a kid, because I was really excited by the whole folk revival thing that was happening and, you know, the, 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 with bands, a pentagon, whatever, you, that it was, uh, no. A pentangle, yeah. Pentangle, thank pentangle. you. Pentangle. <laughs> Sorry. Jethro Tull. Uh, Jethro Tull. And, and, well, I felt that, you know, you using folk music yeah. and madrigals yeah. and something that was about a nostalgia for a particular time that was, you know, more childlike, if you like. That was all in there as well. Well, it was also losing the reliance on Americana. That's correct. Think, yeah. Isn't it? that's, that's, yeah. And, and, and yeah. actually, the, the, the person who was probably most responsible, if you like, for that is Kerry. Because, again, Kerry Minear, he was um, born in, in the West Country and, and went to, you know, uh, Royal Academy of Music. And, you know, his faith is Christian and, and his church music is uh, very sort of apparent in some of the songs we've, you know, we've recorded. The various kind of um, chord sequences, sometimes you'll hear kind of mm. church-like and folk-like stuff. But he was, again, an incredible musician. He is was like him and Tony Banks. He's Tony Banks is the only person you could see as comparable yeah, to Tony's, that. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, he was an amazing find as the first musician that we said, come on board and join the band. And luckily he had no gigs to go to. He was penniless coming out of a, big, in, in a band out of Germany. And he came down to Portsmouth from uh, London. And uh, we, he brought some songs. And anyway, so we, were, we had to carry. And then we were looking for a, a guitarist. Again, we don't know what we were, were looking for, but someone who could complement the three brothers in our adventure into God knows where. Um, honestly, we, we didn't quite know where it was, but I, we all had different influences. And uh, that we, we put an ad, and there was about 50 
to 60 guitars that came down to where we were, and in London too. What did your ads say? Like, no, no breadheads or time wasters. No, no, I, no, I think because we were quasi promised a record deal. I mean, that, that was, and that was part of the equation because luckily then uh, we were banned with a record deal seeking a great I, god I, was, I, I, I wish I could, I could find it that'd be great Derek you, you did the first album at Trident the famous Trident down at in Soho yeah. which is where actually I recorded the Spandau Ballet recorded their first single oh, really? at Trident uh, yeah yeah it's a cut long story short but T-Rex had recorded their well Tyrannosaurus Rex at the time and obviously Bowie later and it was all through Tony Visconti Tony Visconti yeah. was was your producer oh, yeah. what a choice that was because he was coming out of that whole folk world of Tyrannosaurus Rex wasn't he this new folk world yeah well Tony was very very uh, he was fantastic and he still is but he was a fantastic mentor for the band to uh teach us, if you, if you like, how to record an album in the studio. We, up until then, we just done singles. And the first album, you know, you probably know in those days, there were certain, you couldn't block out a week at Dryden, because next door was Queen, you know, there was Roy Baker, and then you've got Mark Bowen waiting outside for his session, and you've got, you know, Bowie parking his car, waiting for his session. It was amazing, actually. <laughs> yeah, we were lucky that Tony was there, and he's also a great musician. You know, Tony. I mean, he was the one that actually sort of uh, put together the recorder of uh, the quartet in the first album. And we befriended him. And in fact, coming from Portsmouth to stay in London for a few days when we were doing our, our first album, he let us crash on his floor at Putney. We didn't have the money for a hotel. Are you kidding? So he was going out at the time with Mary Hopkins. So she was in, the, in, the, in her bedroom and I was sleeping on the floor in the bedroom. You know, so. But Tony was great. I mean, he was incredibly. Yeah, he's a mentor and and gave us a lot of help and and teaching the band to be a recording band. You know, at the same time we'd you know come back after we'd finished our session and he'd be he'd be recording. Uh, you know, Mark Bowen and we see Mark in the studio. To us, it was hilarious because he he loved all these bands. You know, and Mark was literally rolling on the floor with his guitar. And we, you know, being the cynical people we are, we'd be cracking up and saying, "This guy's a loony." You know, this is a uh, <laughs> But it turned out great. And then you mentioned George Underwood with the uh, with a cover. Yeah. I guess you know yeah, the yeah. story there with George and Tony. Tell it, please. Tony suggested that, you know, again, he was very involved, actually, in the first record. In fact, it was his little story, which is in the inside sleeve of the album. This is Tony Visconti. I want to stop you there because I did write that quote down. Tony wrote on the front of the of the cover. It says to expand the frontiers of contemporary popular music at the risk of becoming risk very of become unpopular. unpopular. <laughs> that was the second album. That was the second. Yeah, that was my brother. Oh, it was the second yeah. album. Okay, okay. That was that was my brother oh. being. Um, hmm, how can I put this? A little pompous. Bold. And, uh, bold. It's a bold, bold statement. Bold, bold and, and not quite <laughs> what we exactly wanted to say in those words. But let's get back to your George Underwood story. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So um, Tony said, I, you know, I've got a couple of really good artists uh, uh, that can give it a shot. Um, you know, David, his best friend is a guy called George Underwood. And, you know, David Bowie was we saw him. We hung out, you know, he was there in the studio with his with uh, the guys from Hull, you know, coming up <laughs> to play with him. I mean, it, was, it was it was great, actually. It was I, I can't tell you what a fun time that was. Everyone was there together, you know, it was, but anyway, um, George was Bowie's best friend for years until he died, actually. 
he said, I want you to meet George. He's great. And, and I said, OK, you know, George, why don't you put a picture of Gentle Giant together? Uh, and George came back like a week later in, in a session and presented us with what you see as Gentle Giant. And we thought, wow, OK, thanks, Tony. This will work. And that was Gentle Giant. I, I just want to fill some of the listeners in is that George Underwood was the guy that punched David Bowie in the face over a row with a girlfriend at school and that's what damaged David's eye and why he's always had that funny eye that's George who did yeah. that I know George and I told him you were coming on the show please give my and he love. said yeah. he said the same to you he said pass on my love please I said where is that I asked him where that artwork was the original Gentle Giant cover of the face he said he still has it at home well I want it <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay for it in America, it was the first and second albums, or it was two yeah. albums, or wasn't it? Well, there yeah, was some confusion. Um, or, yeah. No, it was, it was a third album, actually. I'm sacking my researcher. His researcher's me. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you, you, uh, yes, they, they, there's a lot more research to be done. Now, the first two albums uh, were kind of like, they leaked out. They, do, they weren't released, essentially. Um, and when Three Friends was released, they put the giant's face on Columbia, but the giant's face on Three Friends. Right. Uh, and that was the first real release we had in North America. It became an emblem of the band, and it became the sort of, uh, it was our trademark and our stamp and our, yeah. I hate to use the word, logo. brand, <laughs> logo. Brand. And that was George. And, and, and I, I can't thank him enough for coming up with a crazy, you know, weird, bald guy. No, but it's not, but it makes you friendly and approachable. You know, yeah, yeah. which, seeing as some of your music was quite challenging, that's quite a nice thing to welcome people in. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing it in the stores when I was a kid in the shops yeah. and being really attracted to that cover. But I do want to sort of mention Octopus, the album Octopus, which came, uh, you know, in 1972, which I think is your greatest piece of work as a band. I mean, it's the album I always go back to when I'm scanning your music. And it was with a new drummer. I mean, John Weathers, what a drummer. John Weathers, I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Really yeah. added to the sound. I mean, but... That opening track, The Advent of Panurge, I, what a song. And it got yeah. remixed by Stephen Wilson recently. Yeah. I mean, you were peaking then, weren't you, really? That was yeah. hitting your stride. Yeah, I think we were. I mean, I think we, you know, again, you know, if you're a musician, you know when you're, it's kind of like if you're in a real band for a long period of time, you start off kind of like at birth and you become an adolescent and then you become, you know, a young adult and then you become mature and, and you start knowing who you really are you know so at that point with the six piece with my brother phil that was the last album he was on we started to know who gentle giant was and the music that we were made as what we were and i think that um also having martin russian as the engineer was also yeah. key as well because martin it was an incredible asset to the band too and martin obviously went on to do uh, to, to produce went on to produce the human league yeah, yeah. yeah. and altered images uh, yeah and the Stranglers, I believe. No? Of course, Stranglers? yeah. yeah. Yep. So, yeah, it, it was a, a peak there where, where we were starting to really get into our stride. And was, at the same time, we'd done a lot of touring, mostly as, as guests, you know, but we've started to become headliners at some point in certain parts of the world. I mean, certainly Europe. In Italy, we became very big, and Germany, and, and some parts of North America. Jethro Tull were very... Uh, accommodating to the band. I mean, they loved us um, and um, they were incredibly generous in that we did three big tours with them in North America and uh, Europe. 
we remain friends to the day, you know, and myself and, and, and Mark yeah. and all those guys. So, you know, I think it's a really good album. I, I think you're right. It's one of my favorites too. But after that, my brother Phil uh, started feeling the effects of, number one, having a family at home. He was the only one married with kids. And, and um, it was very tough for him to leave them uh, for months at a time. And in those days, we literally... We were touring the States for three or four months, back to back. Which and contact about. was different, wasn't it? It was oh. <laughs> expensive phone calls and, you know, yeah. There's no cells or texts or anything like that. And to tell you the truth, I mean, he was, the gig money was going on the phone calls. I mean, you know, and, and we said, Phil, enough of this shit. <laughs> were you angry with your brother for leaving? To a certain degree. Yeah, to a certain extent. There was. Did, did that take long to heal? Yeah. Actually, after the, the last American tour which is the Octopus Tour, uh, he, he flew back to the UK from North America a couple of times to be with his family, which cost the band a substantial amount of money, to tell you the truth. You know, because we had like three days off. You know, we're not talking about us, uh, you know, at that point getting, you know, $100,000 a gig. We're talking about, you know, enough to put bread on the table. And then we went to Italy. He kept saying, look, this is this tough. You know, I, I got to go back. I'm not sure if I get this and the other. We had another manager at that time, and ultimately the decision was brought to a head. And um, Pat Meehan, who was the manager at that time uh, from Worldwide Artists, said, Phil, are you in the band or are you out of the band? And he sat there and said, I'm out of the band. And literally within half an hour, he was packing his bags and leaving Milan to go home. And that was it. And it kind of left us high and right in Italy. And we finished our Italian tour as a five piece and um it was it was yeah it was it was well, well because you're all multi-instrumentalists yeah. i'm wondering how you've, if you've managed to fill the yeah but we, we had to literally have a day a couple of days off to learn yeah. the parts that he had done and, and all the other various right. you know, to juggle around and but it was very traumatic for especially for me and ray as siblings but honestly it was it was the best thing for phil ultimately when you reflect back on it because he had a family and he probably would have broken up with his family. And, you know, but at that time it was all about the band and, and suddenly it wasn't on a personal level, you know, he's our brother, you know, and, and honestly, sibling rivalry in, in a band, as you probably know, could be quite good and creative sometimes, but three brothers is a whole th- different thing. And, and Phil is 10 years older than I am. And I was a kind of the quasi leader, but Phil wanted to, be there too and there was a lot of this going on and my poor brother Ray was a peacemaker and the rest of the man used to cower in the corner saying oh no let them stop arguing for Christ's sake so yeah there was um, there was a period of time after he quit left was kicked out whatever it was that we didn't speak none of us because we we were left high and dry and we, yeah, we were left high and dry without any kind of like, like safety net if you like however it made the band much more streamlined. And John's addition in Octopus, of course, was absolutely incredible. I mean, he's, he's a drummer, bar none. I mean, an incredible drummer, rock drummer. And I think that it forced us into a direction which was much more focused. And as a five piece, I think we really came into our own in a different fashion than Octopus. 
Yeah, there's some live video footage out there of you, I think, in about 1976, where you're all wearing white. I think you've got a white boiler suit on. Yeah, well, we'll forget that one, though. A la Townsend. Oh, my God, though. The, the, <laughs> yeah, but what I love about it, Guy, is that their chops are so incredible. Oh, no, they're amazing. There's, there's quite a lot of live stuff. There was a BBC thing you did, which is fantastic as a concert. But they're all having From such 76. joy doing it. And there's a sense of humour in what they're yeah. doing as well. That's something that... I guess, was very important to us. Yeah, we were damn good musicians, but we didn't take ourselves seriously. We took our music seriously, but we liked, liked to enjoy it, and we wanted to show the, the mm-hmm. audience that we enjoyed it, and we wanted to see smiles on people's faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we wanted to surprise and shock them, and and and, and, uh, and we weren't, like, looking down at our instruments and, and pretending we were... Segovia or, or, you know, God knows, you know, we want to entertain. We wanted to smile. We, well, we were smiling because we enjoyed it. But do you think that's a dimension that kind of really came over in your music live that maybe I think, I think didn't that, happen on record? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're People correct. Yeah. That was a very important factor. Derek, is it fair to say that by the end of the 80s, with albums like Giant for a Day and Civilian, you'd sort of lost your way musically a little bit as you'd you'd left those roots behind and there was a sort of a striving to become a sort of contemporary rock group? Well, Missing Peace was was the start of that. And, and, you know, look, at that time... With your punk attempt. Let's forget that one. I mean, that, that one, that, I, you know, I, I rarely regret <laughs> anything I've done in my life. I mean, I don't actually. But um, that punk attempt, I wish that it wasn't there. I think it's great. I, just, I think it's good fun, actually. Well, I'm glad you do. <laughs> Whenever I you know, put on any kind of recorded piece of music, I try and skip over that one. Anyway, nevertheless, there were bands who were on the level that we were. I mean, we were playing to pretty big places, even though we were you know, cast as a cult band. We were certainly playing like 20,000 seaters in Italy and, and Germany and, and Quebec and Montreal and, and L.A., et cetera, et cetera. But this, the bands who were bagged alongside us in whatever is called progressive, like Yes and Crimson, you know, ELP and, and Genesis, of course, saw what was coming and uh, said, OK, we better have a, a pop song that, you know, kind of transcends who we were and gets a new audience, which is on their way to being relevant. Well, you know, I guess we thought in our own naive way that we could do the same thing. Well, of course, the one thing that Gentle Giant can never do, unfortunately, in retrospect, was write a really good pop song. Uh, you know, we were good at, you know, putting sort of quirky 7854 stuff together and, and confusing the public, but to put a, you know, a three chord uh, or a five chord chorus and B section was, was difficult for us, or it wasn't difficult, but what we didn't do the same thing that yes and Genesis were able to do. So yeah, I guess we did try to sort of make ourselves more commercial. But in some respects, again, if you continue to do the same kind of thing every day, every year, that's timing in effect as well. You know, so and again, the fans, if you like, may want you to, but you know, we didn't want to. So giving something a shot, there's nothing wrong in it, even if it's a failure or a success. It's funny because on civilian, sorry to interrupt. No, go really on. Sorry, yeah. terrible habit. On civilian, I've, for some reason, I've got down in my notes what I was hearing was like 10cc. Mm, mm. 10cc is one, one of my favorite groups. Art rock. 10cc were great. I mean, I'm unbelievable group. They're great writers and great singers. For me, civilian is one of my favorite albums. 
believe it or not. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, right, right. Because I think we had yeah. Jeff Emmerich. It was the only album we did in right. America. The interesting thing about Jeff Emmerich was that Jeff Emmerich was the very first first engineer on the very first single that Simon Dupree ever did in Abbey Road. Wow. Um, oh, right. Because he was a Beatles engineer, wasn't he? Yeah. And, you know, he was, yeah. run, he was running the four track. Because George Martin was involved back then, wasn't he? Yeah. Wasn't he? Oh, yeah. In, in, in Abbey Road, yeah. Yeah. So he was the engineer in the very first single, and he was, he was the engineer on the very last album. So it's kind of a bookend to have Jeff. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, which is terrible. But um, anyway, so, but, you know, I think Civilian. It's a different album to Octopus. It's a different album to Freehand. You know, it doesn't have a lot of different time signatures, but I think there's a lot of great dynamics in it. In fact, we're actually in the process of releasing it again. Not, not again, because it was hardly even released, actually, when, when it came out first. But now there's a lot of interest in it from, you know, the fans that poo-pooed it back in the day and now think, oh, it's, it's pretty damn great, actually. So in May, we're putting it out remastered with an extra track which has never put on it. Forgive me, Derek, then, for saying that you'd lost your way. I, I think what I'm, I was implying was that, you know, it was your last album and you decided to leave the music business. But, well, decided to leave the music business as a musician. Before we go into that, just one last point, because I, I want to say, because I, I do think you were doing yourself a bit of an injustice earlier, Derek, because I think Civilian shows that you were capable of a certain pop sound. I think so too, actually. I would say. No, I think you're right. And in fact, <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, due to really bizarre circumstances, which I won't get into, it wasn't given the real shot that it deserved. Again, maybe that was the point that it was time to, you know, close that door and open another one for all of us. There's a certain chapter, and if you don't close that chapter, continue and you can start to become a parody of who you were. And that's something I never, ever wanted to be. And I don't think any of us, any of us wanted to be. So tell us about your, you becoming an A&R man. This was in the States, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was living in, in America. My wife's American. And I was living in uh, California at the time. We broke up. I mean, we were supposed to do a European tour after this last American tour. And um, we said, no, I, I, we're done. Here I was living in L.A., which I hated, uh, to be honest with you. And knowing some, a few people around, they said, would you like to produce a couple of bands that were around um, – I wasn't sure. Honestly, I wasn't even sure what I wanted to do. And then kind of a year of like sitting twiddling my thumbs and going to see bands and hanging out. I got a call from a friend who had worked at Chrysalis Records who we were signed to in uh, New York, um, to a guy called Dan Young. He said, hey, you know, what are you up to? He said, not much. He said, well, have you ever thought about joining the dark side, being Darth Vader? You know, I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm at Polygram, which is at that point, there was a company called Siemens and Philips. Their companies together to call this company Polygram. And we're looking for a couple of people to be in the department called the rock department. You know, I, I could use a job because <laughs> my savings were, were kind of like dwindling down to, uh, you know, me, me shaking a cup outside of uh, the Hollywood Bowl, you know. Um, so... Um, I'd be interested in talking. So I flew to New York and I met this uh, gentleman, Jerry Jaffe, who was the head of the rock department in, um, at Polygram. And he knew in a kind of bizarre way that the two people that were very important in promoting rock music in this new form of AOR, a guy called Lee Abrams and a guy called Jeff Pollock, they were chief consultants 
in consulting radio stations, which have become very, very uh, narrow in their playlists. But they were both mm-hmm. big, big fans of Gentle Giant. And he figured if I get this guy me, I could get to them and, and get bands like The Jam, all the other you know, <laughs> stuff that he liked on the radio. Rory Gallagher, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the bottom line is I got the job. And in 82, I was living in New York as, well, initially it was, it was a promotion slash artist development trying to get, as I said, the jam on radio. Can we bring John Bon Jovi into the picture now? Yeah. My first uh, go-round in A&R, believe it or not, was Uriah Heep when I was doing promotion. Jerry Brown was our mentor back in the day. He was trying to shop Uriah Heep's, mm-hmm. what the hell was the album? Abominog? Abominog, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I couldn't get a deal. And I said, I heard a couple of songs and I said, I think this could work. Anyway, I got the, the, the people at the company to sign them. They researched it with a hit. And I said, but no, you know, I, I think I have a clue about this. Anyway, I got my way into being the director of A&R. And um, within the first couple of weeks, you know, there was a song I'd heard on the radio that I kept putting on. There was a song called Runaway. And I kept hearing it. I thought, what the hell is this? At the same time, a lawyer from Philadelphia came up and said, have you heard this song called Runaway? It's by a kid called John Bon Jovi. I said, funny, yeah, I've, I've heard it. And I, it's damn good. What is this? Anyway, he said, "There's a he's putting a band together. Would you like to you know, hear him and, and see him? I said, sure. But anyway, so he gave me four songs, uh, a four song demo. And um, so I, I got to meet John. Because he was working at Power Station, wasn't yeah, he, John? Yeah. He's, he told us, because he's been on the show as well. We've had him on. It was Cousin's Se- Studio. Yeah, second cousin. Yeah, His Cousin's Studio, yeah. yeah totally. Oh, Tony. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so he was working at the Power Station, kind of. You know, Runaway was done by session musicians, but he was putting his band together. And he said, would you like to come see the band in a couple of gigs? And, and you know, I went to see them at a couple of, I can't remember what show it was, at Showcase. And Richie had just joined. And um, they put on a couple of shows. And they were, they were good. You know, they were, they were really good, actually. But, you know, John, he wasn't sure whether he wanted to be Rex Smith or David Lee Roth because he was shaking his ass in a blue or purple leather pants. So literally, I, I, you know, took him aside, you know, and said, John, you guys are really good. I'm going to introduce you to the rest of the, the, the label. They did a showcase for the rest of the company, if you like, or, or the rock department. And... To tell you the truth, it wasn't a very good one. But I believed in John because John was a person I sat down with. And I I don't think I've ever sat down with someone so driven to be even at that stage in his career. A teenager, you know, who'd written a couple of decent songs. He said, I'm going to be as big as Elvis. I promise you. And that's what he said to me. And I come on. And he wasn't kidding. You look in someone's eyes and when they say that you want to see the wink. But no. So his mom and his dad were basically looking after him. So uh, his mom said, John, I mean, I, I'd like to meet this guy, Derek. And, and so I went down in Sayreville, New Jersey with John, you know, and I was really interested in signing them, even though some of the guys didn't like them. Carol Bon Jovi said, please take care of John if you do. So we signed Bon Jovi. And this is New Jersey Italians. Hey, take care of John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to skip to the meat and potatoes, really, because you nurtured John through two albums that weren't that, you know, huge as, as Bon Jovi. But then you did something extraordinary and you put John in a room with Desmond Charles. Correct. 
So who's one of the top songwriters, right? Well, at that point, he was getting there. Yeah, getting there. Yeah, I was introduced to, to by um, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons to Desmond because I was working with Kiss as well, and they wrote a couple of Lick It Up, for instance. And I was working that. I said, "Who's this child guy on your record?" And he said, "Well, there's a band called Desmond Child and Rouge. He's a great songwriter." And I said, "Well, okay. Can you introduce me?" So Gene introduced it to uh, Desmond because John was, I have to say, open to co-writing. He was that determined. And I said, boy, do I mention someone? He said, yeah, I'd love to meet someone who's a really good writer. So I said to John, there's a guy called Desmond Child uh, who wrote a couple of Kiss songs. When do you guys get together? So they got together and they started writing Slippery When Wet. And at that same time, I'd heard you know, Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock's uh, um, productions of Loverboy and uh, a couple of other Canadian rock bands. And they were superb. They were great productions. And I got hold of Bruce and Bob. And so I've got this band who were coming up. They're doing really well. I got Doc McGee involved and he got them on the road. And, and they learned their chops by going out there with, you know, Van Halen, Scorpions, God knows what else. Anyway, they said, OK, we'll produce it. And uh, so they went up to Vancouver with Desmond and, and uh, Bob and, and Bruce. And uh, Slippery and Wet was, was produced. Living on a Prayer is one of the biggest hits of all time. Yeah. Because of you, Derek. Derek, I've got to say, do you not think there's a certain irony in the fact that you had this musical career, right, with a very bold statement of what you were going to do? And you did, I would say that Gentle Giant probably at the time did commercially as well as they could have been expected to do. Like you said, you ended up doing really big gigs and everything like that. But then after that, it turns out that the one thing you really know how to do is spot a hit. Well, <laughs> yes, I did. I learned. It's not such a hit. Now, I learned how to see... An artist, I guess. An artist yeah. who didn't just like, want to be on the charts or want to be famous, but who wanted to, who, who had it in their, in their DNA that if they stepped on stage, what was their purpose? And John's purpose, you know, was to be as big as ever, to be as big as Elvis, that's what he said. In his own words, I've seen a million faces and I've rocked them all. Yeah, it was uh, exactly that. Uh, <laughs> Derek, I just want to tell the, the listeners who else you sort of helped along and brought into the world. I mean, Cinderella, obviously this whole hair metal thing that started in the 80s, you know, really came out of, of those kind of bands, Kingdom Come and Slipknot and Pantera. The, I mean, metal seemed to be your thing. But the other huge hit that you helped, Bring the world was Nickelback, and you know I, I've forgotten the name of the track now, but it was one of the biggest songs of, of all time. How you remind me? Thank you, you, thank you, like, thank you. To finish off, I, we want to hear about this one. Well, Nickelback's another interesting little sidebar because they had recorded the first album, not Sunny Side Up, the one before themselves. They were a Vancouver band, and I'd heard this uh, song, Leader of Men. I was running Roadrunner Records at the time. I was president of Roadrunner, and my A and R guy called um, Steve Berman had a bunch of tapes. I said, give me, you know, what are you listening to? He says this, I've got this, I've got this, and I've got this. He gave me this tape of a band called Nickelback. And I heard it, I said, who's this? He said, some band out of Vancouver. And I kept putting this track Leader of Men on because one thing I know about myself is if I hear a track and I want to hear it again, and it sticks in your head, you say, why do you want to hear it again? Because it was such an unusual arrangement because it wasn't a verse chorus, you know, verse chorus, B section, you know, uh, solo. It was four sections of the same thing, but so well put together, songwriting-wise. I said, who's Nickelback? Anyway, the bottom line is I went up to see these guys, and uh, I said, so what's the story with their album? They said, well, we can't get a deal. He said, we've done this album on our own. 
we can't even get a Canadian deal. Anyway, the bottom line is I did the very cheap deal for the album. Leader of Men came out, and it really was a precursor to the next album. And when I heard the demo for Harry Remind Me, I knew they had hit the jackpot. And that was, again, one of the biggest tracks of all time in the like, early, I can't remember, the 2000s. Uh, this has got the same kind of um, attention for being a hit that, I guess, um, live on a prayer, sort of double chorus. In rock history, they have a funny sort of place, don't they? And it's very similar to the story of uh, Grand Funk Railroad back in the early 70s, who sold out masses of arenas that were huge and yet were hated by the press. And Nickelback live in that sort of strange world, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Uh, it's uh, elitism, which is based on bullshit. You know, they're corporate, they play simple music. But you know what? That music, I mean, Chad is a damn good songwriter, let me tell you that. And, and yeah, yeah. you know, he's, uh, he, he writes great songs. Unfortunately, he opens his mouth a little too much in, in the wrong way. You know, and I've had that with other bands that have, have a self-destruct uh, elements to them as well. But nevertheless, you know, yeah, they, they became the emblem of corporate rock, which is kind of silly and, and, and elitist and, and nonsense because, you know what, look at what's happening with the corporate hip-hop world, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's a whole different animal. But, yeah, they became uh, this kind of joke, if you like. The joke is on Nickelback. But you know what? They, they, they can take their joke and spend them joke money in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. the bottom line is I, I, I had the same feeling about how you remind me as I did when I heard Bad Name and um, Living on a Prayer. I just knew they had their songs. Derek, thank you. Yeah, that's been, it's been really, and long. We've had a, a very, very, that, that's brilliant. Fantastically yeah, but you know, engaging. No, fantastically engaging such a, is great. A massive career you've had, Derek. Yeah. And, you know, we spoke about you in the intro. What you've given the music world is quite an extraordinary and diverse set of records. What should I be sorry about all that? <laughs> no. no, you shouldn't be. No, but I suppose what's wonderful is that there is very much a, you know, a resurgence of interest in all, in all your stuff and I think that's great and it's well deserved. Uh, Can that, we get Gentle Giant much. back on stage? <laughs> well, in wheelchairs and uh, crutches, yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no. I mean, is it, it, there's none of that's possible. No, I, I, no again, it's the same thing as every chapter has a close, every chapter has an ending and that was part of a, a chapter. That was the end of the chapter. Let's move on to another chapter. I never want to be a parody of myself. And I don't think any of us, certainly my brothers, and we'd never want that either. Brilliant. Thank you to your son, Noah, for helping yeah. us get you on because we've been trying to get you on for a while and uh, it's been total pleasure having you. Yeah, me too. And I, it's a pleasure speaking to you guys as well. We're at the Beacon Theatre in September or October and if you're around, we'd love you. It's to just, down, just down yeah. the street from me yeah. here. Yeah. And I'd forgotten that Paul Stanley, who we had on the show from Kiss, he, he, that's he, right. He mentioned you as well. <laughs> you're everywhere. You're the you're the Kevin Bacon of rock and roll. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> six degrees. <laughs> you weren't in the six degrees. You weren't in the three degrees, were you? <laughs> all right, Derek. All the best. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks Thank you, much. sir. Cheers, Derek. All the very best. Thank you very much. That was Bye -bye. great. Wow, that was a long one, but it was, you know, he's got so much stuff. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald said there are no second acts in American lives. And, uh, well, he's not American, because that's a hell of a second act. That's a beautiful quote, that guy. I like that. You worked on that one, did you? <laughs> no, no, that, it just... I have my moments of inspiration, guys. Do you know, just uh, if people are going to go and who haven't heard Gentle Giant and going to listen to 
some of the tracks which we mentioned earlier but there's one track I do want to point you to which is on the Octopus album it's called Think of Me with Kindness I said it to you the other day Guy when I'm saying yes, you how did. Yeah, it's amazing. beautiful and it's, it's really but he doesn't sing he it. doesn't sing it it's Kerry Manier and it's his song but it's unbelievably gorgeous oh well we better wrap up we better we better get out of here Thank- so it's good night from and me it's good night from the octopus <laughs> When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.